Once you're there in Nehemiah 5, I'm going to pray. Uh, well, sorry, I'm going to read the scripture and then I will pray for us. All right, Nehemiah 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter today, so bear with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. But other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our, our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are, leading, are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Anaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took for them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we, we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what we prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I'm reminded of the pastor who each step as he walked up to the pulpit said, I remember, I remember the Holy Spirit and I believe in the Holy Spirit. Over and over he said that. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you be at work this morning? Would you use the words in my preparation? Would it encourage your people of God? Would it convict your people of God? Would we see the beauty of Christ so much more clearly? 
And would it inspire us? Would it call us to a life of generosity? In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Can good intentions hinder our growth? Can a good desire for comfort, for preservation, can that actually get in the way of what is best for us? This is a question that was asked in a book that came out a couple years ago. The title was The Coddling of the American Mind. Maybe some of you have read it. In the book, the authors argue that well-intentioned adults are unwittingly harming young people by raising them in such a way that they implicitly are conveying three great untruths. So the whole premise is there's these three great untruths, and so here, let me lay them out for you. The first untruth. The untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So avoid pain. Avoid discomfort. Avoid all potentially bad experiences. Second, the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. Never question them. And then third, the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Maybe you've seen some of this in our culture today. Parents, professors, teachers, mentors all have a good desire to protect, to comfort. But what if all of the bubble wrap, what if all the obstacles being bulldozed out of the way, what if that's unintentionally harming those that we care for? So in response, they offer these three truths. First, seek out challenges rather than eliminating or avoiding them altogether and things that make you feel unsafe. Second, free yourself from cognitive distortions rather than always trust your feelings, talk back to them. And then finally, take a generous view of other people and look for nuance rather than assuming the worst about people with a simplistic us versus them mentality. And whether you agree with those truths or not, I think they are interesting and they're intriguing and it's an interesting book because I believe that it pokes at a core idol of our culture, something that we see in our culture, that we even see in our churches and in our families and in ourselves, and that is the idol of comfort. We are obsessed with comfort. Just think for a second. Think about the existence of Uber Eats, of Amazon Prime, of Netflix, right? We are too lazy to even go and get fast food that is prepared by someone else. We need someone to come and deliver it to our doorstep. Or hell hath no fury for the package that takes more than two days to get to us through Amazon Prime, right? Three days? Are you kidding me? And then with Netflix, like, do you even remember when you had to watch a show and wait a week anymore? Like, you want to be able to watch the entire show right now, in the moment, the day that it comes out. We love our comfort. In fact, we prioritize our comfort. And sometimes, even to the detriment of our communities, and to our churches, and to our families, and to our own souls, we prioritize comfort. And that's why I think this text this morning is so helpful, is because it's so real. You notice all the things that it addresses? Taxes, debt, oppression, abuses of power, public outcry, restitution. These are very real you know, realities that we see on TV today, that we see every, everywhere in our culture. So if fragility, emotional reasoning, us versus them thinking coddles the American mind, then what coddles the church? What inhibits our growth and decreases spiritual resilience? And I'd argue that our text this morning is going to show us three great untruths on how to inhibit our spiritual growth. 
Live by these to the detriment of your community. Live by these to the detriment of your church and, and to your own spiritual growth. So first, keep your head down. Ignore the needs of those around you. Second, stay silent. Walk in the fear of man. And third, hands closed. Enjoy the spoils like everybody else. Head down, stay silent, hands closed. It's our step-by-step -step guide on how to stay comfortable, how to keep our comfort, how to stay coddled, and how not to grow. So first, look with me. The first step, keep your head down. Ignore the needs of those around you. Look at verse 1. We see that there is a great outcry of the people. And notice who the outcry is. Notice who it's from. It's from the wives, and it's against their own Jewish brothers. We see that this is wives and children that are having an outcry. And why is that, right? If you remember back in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, where did we see that everyone was? What were they doing? They were all working on the wall, if you remember. Working on the wall, and then they would even stay and guard the wall. So imagine yourself, if you're a family and you're already kind of behind on your bills, and there's this great project to work on the wall, and all of a sudden... Your husband is away 50 days working on this wall, and he's not working anymore. He's not making any money. He's not putting any bread on the table, and you were already behind on your bills, and then all of a sudden, your debts are growing and growing. We see that this work is having some consequences in a way, and they're already in more and more debt. They are starving, right? They said they just want to keep alive. And look as how their desperation grows in verses 3 and 4. They say, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then some even go on to say, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. They are entering second mortgages on their property. They are even taking out loans to pay their taxes. Not exactly Dave Ramsey recommended, right? This is not a good financial situation. They are in desperate straits. And then we get to the most horrifying part. Look at verse 5. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. They are in such a desperate position that they are looking at their children as assets. How horrifying is that? Imagine the loan shark debt collector coming to the house, walking around, seeing that there's nothing left to sell, and then noticing the strength of one of their sons or the beauty of one of their daughters and asking if they can accept that as payment. How horrifying is that? For you, that your parents, you can't even imagine such a thing. But this is how desperate they are, and not only desperate, we see that they are powerless. If you notice in verse 5, they say, it is not in our power to help it. Where are they to go? Where is the justice? Who will answer them? Who will save them? Who will advocate for them? And then we see the response in Nehemiah in verse 6. And I'd say this is probably very understandable, very relatable as you read this text. What does he say? I was very angry. Probably some of you right now are very angry in hearing this. The people were powerless. When I think of this sense of powerlessness, it makes me think back to a movie, maybe some of you have seen um, the movie Rainmaker. It's got a young Matt Damon in it, and he's a lawyer, and he's just graduated from law school, and he's, he's starting his first case, and we, we see this poor family who is slowly watching their son die of a preventable medical condition. And so Matt Damon's on the case because 
they have this insurance policy that they've been paying into faithfully, and now they have a legitimate claim for their son who they love so much as they're slowly watching him die, and they keep resubmitting the, the claim over and over and over, and it keeps getting denied. Until the, the seventh time she sends the claim in, and she gets a letter from a claim officer who says, you are stupid, stupid, stupid. It's horrible. Maybe you've seen that scene. It's, it's so, it, it's unbelievable in a way. But what we find out is that this insurance company is, it's, it's entirely a scam. That, that, and their whole policy is to deny claims over and over, hope to reach a settlement, and to just move on and keep the profits. It's evil. And sadly, the son dies in the story, and here this family is left with a son that could have been saved if he had just received the payment. And so, of course, you know, Matt Damon, through his amazing work, is able to get the jury to, to rule in favor of, of the, the family, and they're owed $50 million. And then another realistic thing happens. What, what does the company immediately do? They de declare bankruptcy, and no one receives a penny. It's horrible, but it's relatable, because we see this level of greed and injustice in our own world. And this, these parents felt so powerless. They were desperate. And they only got one semblance of justice from this young lawyer by his hard work. The people in Nehemiah are powerless. And no one seems to be listening. In fact, the people that are oppressing them, we find out, are actually the very people of God, against their own flesh and blood. And this is not just an issue in Nehemiah's day. We see this in our world today. If your chief aim in life is to be comfortable, if that is what your entire life is about, then wouldn't you respond like the people in Nehemiah with wealth and power? Wouldn't you keep your head down and worry about yourself first? Disregard the needs of those around you so that you could have more for yourself? But what if our main goal in our Christian life is not to just live comfortably? Are we willing to make sacrifices for the good of our Christian brothers and sisters? How does this change our ethics, our business practices? The people of Nehemiah's day had an opportunity in this moment. Imagine if they had responded differently. They noticed that the people working all 24 hours sacrificially. What if these people who had more were willing to give? Imagine how beautiful that would have been if they had come to these families, offered them grain, put food on the table, and said, I see the sacrifices you're making. I see that you're making the wall for this entire city, for us, for my family. Let me help. Let me contribute. But instead, they saw an opportunity to exploit. They saw an opportunity for profit. So I ask you, how are you tempted to disregard the needs of those around you? How are you tempted to do so? Where might you choose comfort when you have an opportunity to sacrifice, to give, and really an opportunity for growth for yourself? Where do you choose comfort? I found in reflecting on this as I was writing this, I found it's really easy for us to make excuses. And one of the main ones that I did was comparison, right? All you need is one person in your life who's more well-off than you, who maybe gives like a little bit less than you. And you can be like, well, I'm not like them. You know, like they've got, they've got a lot of money and you know, I, I give a little bit more than they do, so I'm not that bad. It's so easy for us to just make one quick comparison to write this all off and go back and be comfortable. That's what we want. But I ask you, if everything that we have is a gift of God, every single thing that we have, and how could we not be gracious stewards of those gifts? 
So if comfort is our main goal in life, then we must not only ignore the needs of those around us, but we must walk in the fear of man. Look at the response of Nehemiah in verses 6 and 7. First, we saw that he's angry. He's already listened to the people, right? So he's listened. Now he's angry. But then it doesn't end there. Verse 7, he takes counsel with himself. He takes a moment to process his anger. He doesn't just respond out of his anger. And I would say that that is wisdom, right? Imagine the amount of damage that Nehemiah could have done in this situation if he had responded out of rage and out of anger. Couldn't a man in his position have burned the entire city down? Respond with rage and all of a sudden you have a riot on your hands and the people in power are overthrown, the wall isn't finished, the city is burning, and the whole time Satan is smiling but he takes a moment and chooses the path of wisdom. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to meet the problem head on. We see that he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. He doesn't cower from the moment after processing it. He doesn't take a moment to use back-channeling and be passive-aggressive. He, he, he completely meets this, this moment and this challenge head on. This is courage. And he confronts it, we see, like a prosecutor. Look at verse 7. So he brings the charges against the nobles and the officials, and he says to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. We see he is accusing them of acting like loan sharks, of charging them this, this immense interest on top of their loans that they'll never be able to pay, making profit off of their situation. And this is actually particularly awful with their actions, because if you're familiar in the law of God that the people have received in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're explicitly told to never charge interest to another Israelite. And not only that, they are absolutely never supposed to receive them as slaves, to take them in as slaves if they had just been redeemed from Egypt, if you remember the story of the people of God. So they are breaking God's law clearly. And we can tell that these words carry weight and they seem to hit home, because look at the response of the people. They are silent. This conviction has hit home. And in verse 9, we see the judgment comes. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So first, he appeals to their consciences. consciences. He tells them, it is not good. And then he charges them to return to the fear of the Lord. If you're familiar with that phrase, the fear of the Lord, maybe you've heard it before. It's all over the Old Testament, especially if you go to the book of Proverbs, if you remember. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One author put it this way. The fear of the Lord is the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. I like that definition because it has a relational tone to it. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. The affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It's not just simply standing by an ocean and then seeing how amazing the waves are. No, there's a personal part of this too. It's relational. Our father, our father's law. And in the fear of the Lord, we see a tension. Because if you know our father, you know two things about him. You know he is just, he is righteous, he has wrath, but he's also full of mercy and grace and love. And that tension puts us in awe. We, we, we respect him, we love him, we adore him, and it changes the way that we live. 
But these people in Nehemiah, these officials, these nobles, they were not living in a fear of the Lord. Instead, they were living in a fear of man. To them, people were big and God was small, as one author has put it. Maybe some knew deep down that what they were doing was wrong. It kind of seems that way, right? In, in response to these charges, they're silent. They have no defense. They're not quick to make excuses. So maybe some of these men knew what they were doing was wrong, but they felt like the only thing they could do was go along with the flow. Why would they stand alone? Why would they stand alone against the stream of everyone that was making a quick dollar? What would it cost them to be the only one to stand up and to say no? It's so much easier to go along with the rest. But shockingly, look at verse 10. Do you notice what Nehemiah says here? He changes from a prosecutor to a defendant. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Do you notice Nehemiah, our hero of the story here, seems to be culpable in some way. He is identifying with the people that are lending here. He seems to be admitting that he too has lent, but we also see what type of a leader he is. He is a leader who repents. He is the first to repent. He is the first to call the people to return what they have stolen and what he has stolen. He leads with integrity, and in this moment, he stands alone. And we see him finalize this heroic moment, this, this moment of repentance with a, a public commitment, a public covenant, a public promise that they will return what they have stolen. And amazingly, do you see the response of the people? Do you see that this, this, this is all about money here? Can you imagine if someone did this publicly and all the people responded with an amen and praised God in response? How amazing is that? Can you poke the idol of money and then people actually receive it and, and praise God in response? Clearly God is at work here. You'd, you'd imagine them to be like, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I like being comfortable. I like the money I'm receiving from this practice. But instead, they receive this, they're silent, and then their only response is to praise the Lord. It's amazing. The fear of, the man, the fear of man is also known as the idol of approval. And when we think of the fear of man, it's hard not to immediately think of the Apostle Peter, if you're familiar with his story. A man who is very quick to say something and to put his foot in his mouth, right? He was very quick to uh, respond Rashly, if you remember, he attacks the man on the night of Jesus' arrest. Often he's one of the, the disciples that a lot of us can relate to. We say something, we regret it. His most infamous moment is the night of Jesus' crucifixion, when he had three opportunities and people came up to him and said, aren't you the man, weren't you with that Jesus? And he's like, I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. You've got the wrong guy. I'm not that man. I don't know this Jesus fellow that you're talking about. And then, of course, the rooster crows, right? And here was Peter in that moment, afraid of persecution, wanting the approval of those around him, wanting to be accepted and afraid of the people around him. But if you know Peter's story, that is not the end of his story. The fear of man does not have the final say on his life. The idol of approval is not his master because he experiences the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And he even goes on to write this in 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, which I think hearing Peter's denial behind these verses, watch it come to life for you. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do you hear that? He's talking about fearing the Lord, and he's talking about answering with gentleness and respect. You can almost hear that he's writing this as he's thinking about those moments when he did not do that. But how has the grace and mercy of Jesus changed his life completely? He feared the Lord. He lived a life of repentance, just like Nehemiah does here. The opposite of courage is not fear, but cowardice. So in response to fear, are you more tempted to try and flee, or are you more tempted to fight? Ponder deeply your natural bent. Do you need more to see Nehemiah's example here in taking a moment in his anger, when he could have just fought in the moment and caused way more damage, but he took a moment to ponder it and to contemplate how best to respond? Or are you more like the nobles and the officials of Nehemiah's day who were not willing to stand up and went along with what was going on? Nehemiah stood alone, he led by example, and he publicly repented, and his courageous actions saved countless lives. So I ask you, are you willing to stand alone for your community? Are you willing to stand alone for your workplace, for your friends, for your family, for your church? Are you willing to stand alone even if everyone else is doing what they are doing? If comfort is our main goal in life, then we must ignore the needs of those around us, we must walk in the fear of man, and finally, we must enjoy the spoils like everybody else. Look at verse 14. He says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Anaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. We see a couple things here. First, that Nehemiah is the governor of Judah, and with that, you have to imagine that he had the ability to really enjoy that position. Imagine being a king and having someone you trust in a place like this, someone restoring the area, rebuilding the walls. How easy would it be for you to be like, man, I'm so glad that he is there, things are going well, you know, let, let's let him enjoy the position a little bit. He can increase the taxes, enjoy it, he's, he's making this, this problem for me, he's making it go away, so I don't mind if he enjoys his position. And so in verse 15, we even see that this was a common practice. Look at 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah did not do so like everyone else used to because he feared the Lord and he would not exploit the Lord's people. And look instead what he does. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is the type of leader he is. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So the type of leader that Nehemiah is, is he's the one that is on the ground working with the people. He's not enjoying the, 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 he's not enjoying the, the perks of his position, Instead, he is working alongside the people on the ground. And even further, we see that he is opening up his home to the people. You catch that? Over 150 people are coming to his house. Imagine that dinner table. That's serious. That's like the men's barn meeting that I went to recently, where there was you know, hundreds of men there eating a meal together. This is a serious feast. 
that he is putting on for the community. 150 people plus, it's like a wedding feast each, each night that he's throwing for his community. But do you notice who is paying the bill as well in verse 18? At my expense for each day. And he goes on to list the grocery bill. That's a serious grocery bill that Nehemiah is paying for the people. And it's clear that he is not going to sit back and live comfortably while the people suffer. Even if others in the past did so in his position, even if it required him to make a great sacrifice, he was willing to put his community before his own financial security. And we can see from this text clearly that Nehemiah is very wealthy. Isn't that obvious from putting on these regular wedding feasts? Imagine how much money you'd have to be able to do that day after day after day. But do you see anywhere that he's condemned for being wealthy in this text? We don't see anywhere that he seems to be condemned for being wealthy. We see that Nehemiah, Nehemiah may have had wealth, but his wealth did not have him. We see that he is a steward of what the Lord has given him, and his purpose with that wealth is to be a blessing to the people. Nehemiah shows us how Christians ought to live as generous and hospitable people. Author Rosaria Butterfield, in a book that I've been reading recently called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, that title alone, just remember that. The gospel comes with the house key. It's beautiful. She tells the story of her life coming to faith. And prior to Christ, she was actually a lesbian feminist who taught English at Syracuse University. And she tells the story of how she was writing an article that was kind of scathing of an organization called the Promise Keepers. And so she received a lot of, of, of mail after she wrote that article. And she would kind of been committed to reading whatever hate mail she received. And she opened up one letter, and it was from a pastor, and it was the nicest letter that she had ever received. And in that letter, the, the pastor actually gave her an invitation to come over to his home for dinner, to eat, eat dinner with his family. And she talks about how she felt like a good scholar. She needed to go and investigate these Christians and to see them head on and to confirm what she believed about them in, the, in, their, in their own home. And so she surprisingly accepts this dinner invitation. And then she goes on to say how nothing unfolded as the way that she expected. And she writes this, Nothing happened in the way I expected, not that night, or the years after, or the hundreds of meals, or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible and with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. How beautiful is that? Let me read that. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality. That's a beautiful image of Christian hospitality and generosity. It is sacrificial. It does have a cost. It can be inconvenient and it can be expensive, but it is worth it. And God used it in this instance to save a complete stranger to save her soul. And none of us in this room probably have the wealth of Nehemiah, right? We can't host 150 people at our home regularly with these huge wedding feast-like events. 
But what if simply you start smaller? What if you just invited your neighbor over to your house for dinner? Start there. Do you have a dinner table? Do you have the ability to maybe make a little extra room in your grocery budget to buy a little extra this week? What delicacy or comfort could you sacrifice to practice ordinary hospitality? And you may be thinking, why would I ever want to do something like that? You know, the way of comfort, it sounds so much nicer. Well, listen to these words from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. How do we live with empathy, with courage, with generosity? Well, we fix our eyes on our generous Savior, who humbled himself even to the point of dying on a cross for us while we were still sinners. In Jesus, we see a greater leader of God's people, greater than Nehemiah. We see someone, we see our Savior who listened to the cries of his people. And not only that, he intercedes on their behalf. We see that he will judge the oppressors and he will bring justice to his people. He frees his people from bondage, even to sin and death. He redeems us, he saves us. He speaks up when he sees hypocrisy and he lived a life of perfect wisdom. He was tempted and yet he did not sin and he was infinitely generous, dying on a cross for us. His grace and his mercy brings the outsider in names them family and accepts them as sons and daughters. If you want to grow in generosity, look at the cross and look to your Savior. The deeper that we grasp this truth, the deeper that the gospel sets in, the more we are going to flourish with courage and generosity. In closing, a hero of mine, a man named Francis Schaeffer, who was a a pastor and a theologian and an apologist, I was reading recently about a time in his life when he had a spiritual crisis. He had gone stale. He had lost his joy. Maybe you felt similarly yourself. And he, in his, I, I was reading his writing, you know, as he was wandering through the beautiful Switzerland countryside and in prayer and, and, and working his way back through his own life and how he came to Christian faith, he wrote these words. I searched through what the Bible said concerning reality as a Christian. Gradually, I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received after I was a Christian, I heard little about what the Bible says about the finished work of Christ on our present lives. Gradually, the sun came out and the song came. Interestingly enough, although I had written no poetry for many years, in that time of joy and song, I found poetry beginning to flow again. When he had gone stale, when he had lost his joy, he went back to the gospel And the beauty of the gospel made him alive and renewed his joy. As one author put it, do you want to grow in Christ? Never graduate beyond the gospel. Move ever deeper into the gospel. 
Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your generosity in sending Jesus to come down and to save us from our sins. Lord, let us embody that generosity. Let us embody that hospitality because you have already done it for us. In your name we pray. Amen.